We believe in stories from the seats because we believe it's one place you can see the power of God at work in a life. And uh, I think for Kevin, he's been in the seats a long time. Uh, And the seat he is usually in is like right here in this service, unless he's producing the service. Kevin has been a servant at Orchard uh, as long as I've been here and longer. Kevin uh, used to be the Sunday school superintendent of this place back when we ran the thing that way. That was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he's uh, led our drama ministry when we did drama for years and years and years, and now he's a producer in the back. And sometimes I'm asked the question, Dave, how do you know if the church is working right? And the actual answer to that is you have to look into the lives of the people who've been in the church a long time. And sometimes you look into the lives of people who've been in the church in a long time, and you see very little change in growth. And you go, whoa, it didn't work for them. Kevin's one of those guys you will hear that orchard working because of how God has formed this man. I'm so glad you get to hear his story. And uh, Kevin, uh, I'm going to say a prayer for you right okay. now as you tell your story. Father, open our ears, open our hearts, that we could learn from this very true story that Kevin's telling us that we could uh, laugh and be touched and um, learn and see how real you are in a life. Be with Kevin as he shares the story. It is not easy. It takes courage. Give him those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Kevin. Thanks, Dave. If you'd excuse me for just a minute before I start, I have a little family business I have to take care of, something I forgot to do this morning. Happy Mother's Day, honey. (laughs) As Dave said, If you've been around here any time at all, you've seen me on this stage before because of my involvement in drama ministry. And I can assure you that the character I'm going to play this morning is the most difficult character I've ever played on this stage. This is my journey. I'm Kevin Zabel, the youngest child of Jack and Maddie Lou Zabel. My dad was raised in Waterloo as an only child. His biological father left his mom while she was pregnant with dad. Much of his childhood was filled with listening to his mom and stepfather argue on a regular basis. His way to get away from the constant arguing was to spend all of his summers and most weekends on his grandparents' farm near Janesville. His grandpa became the father figure in his life. When Dad was drafted for the Korean War, his grandpa told him the next time he saw him, Dad would be smoking cigars and have a southern bell on his arm. Dad never took up smoking, but he did get the southern bell part right. My mom was raised on a 100-acre farm in northwest Georgia. Her father was a reformed moonshiner turned elder in the Mount Zion Baptist Church. This small one-room church was just down the road from their farm, and being an elder meant that every fourth Sunday, Brother Hobson John Garner was at the pulpit delivering the message. My grandpa had eight daughters and three sons, but to him, gender didn't matter. They were all farmhands. Mom told me that when school would start in the fall, they would be harvesting cotton, so they would not go to school. After about a week, the county sheriff would show up at the farm and tell her dad the kids need to be in school. He would inform the sheriff once the crop was in, his kids would be in school. They usually started school about three weeks later than all the other kids. My parents met in Atlanta when dad was preparing to go to Korea. After the war, dad returned to Georgia to bring my mom back to Iowa and marry her. He promised my grandpa that he would bring mom home to visit every year, and I don't ever remember missing an annual visit to grandpa's farm. 
I have an older sister, Peggy, that was born in 1956. My brother, Craig, was born in 1958. After Craig was born, Mom's doctor recommended she not have any more kids due to her health, but I would have none of that and was born on March 11, 1961. <laughs> the first time my grandma saw me, she swore there was no way that scrawny baby would ever live. We lived on Round Street in Cedar Falls. Dad worked as a mechanic at the John Deere Product Engineering Center. My growing up years were a fun, carefree time in my life. We had the best yard in the neighborhood for a game of baseball or football, and the rope swing in the large elm tree in the backyard made our house the neighborhood gathering place for all the kids. One day, someone showed up at our house with information about a new reformed church that was coming to Cedar Falls, and it would be called Orchard Hill. Mom and Dad had been wanting a church closer to home for us kids, so they became charter members of this new church. All three of us kids were baptized on the same day with the very first group of kids baptized in the new church. We always attended at least three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. Back then, Sunday night church meant that you had to miss the last half of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom and all of the wonderful world of Disney. That was like torture to a young kid at the time, but my parents didn't seem to be bothered by it. My brother always joked that if the church was open, we were there. I remember if it was cold and snowy, we'd beg to stay home, but Mom would always remind us that the farmers from Dyke, Hudson, and Janesville wouldn't be able to make it in with the weather, and someone had to be there. <laughs> Mom was probably the kindest, most loving person I've ever known. She never said a bad word about anyone. She always told us kids that if we didn't have something nice to say about someone, then we shouldn't say anything at all, and that is how she lived. One of my fondest childhood memories of my mom was her in the kitchen rolling out a pie crust and singing Blessed Assurance at the top of her lungs with a group of neighbor kids sitting outside under the open kitchen window listening to her sing. To this day, that song still puts a big lump in my throat. Dad was the complete opposite of Mom. Being an only child, he was very much an introvert. He had a knack for being able to fix anything mechanical. He was pretty much self-taught on a lot of different things. He was a hard worker as well. He'd repair tractors all day at John Deere and then come home and repair cars in our garage at night. He swore I was under a car with him in the garage before I was out of diapers. He was a disciplinarian of the family and made sure us kids towed the line. Oh, mom could hold her own when it came to spankings as well. They were firm with us kids, but we knew it was because they loved us. Growing up, it just felt like we had the all-American family living the American dream. Our parents didn't argue because they loved each other and we knew they loved us as well. My greatest concern growing up was that older brother of mine that could always run faster than me and jump higher than me. He was the guy that could date any girl he wanted to and made it to adulthood without ever having a single pimple. How could I ever measure up to this guy? I always wanted to be more like Craig and more like Dad, but always felt a little inferior to them. It wasn't until many years later that I realized I was wired like my mom and not my dad. I've learned to be okay with that. As I prepared this story, I shared with Craig how I always thought there was something wrong with me because I wasn't more like him or Dad. He chuckled and told me he felt the same way about himself because Dad and I enjoyed canoeing, camping, and working in Dad's wood shop, all things Craig had no interest in. Craig and I got along well growing up. We shared a bedroom until I was in the seventh grade. I always had a companion in him, and by our high school years, we were both working at the same service station on 6th and Main in Cedar Falls, pumping gas and fixing flat tires. There was no one else I wanted as best man at my wedding day 
than Craig, and he returned the favor when he got married. For the last 19 years, Craig and I have been selling and servicing x-ray equipment together at ZNZ Medical. The first real struggle for our family occurred when I was a junior in high school. It was Labor Day weekend, and Mom just wasn't herself. She seemed to be in a shell and was doing odd things like putting a cake in the oven and then going to bed. By the next evening, she was in the mental health ward at Allen Hospital. After a few days, they let her come home, but she was just an empty shell of the person she once was. They had her so heavily medicated that she would shake constantly. It was a real struggle for our family. After a few months with no improvement, they wanted to start shock treatments on her. Dad insisted that before he would let them do that, they must remove her from all medications and see what would happen. Dad knew she couldn't handle much medication, and he was right. In the weeks that followed, we saw her slowly begin to return to her old self. By spring, she had returned to her job at River Hill School part-time, and it felt like she had her mental issues under control. It was March 21st, and it was a beautiful spring day. Mom had done some spring cleaning and was preparing to take a load of stuff to Goodwill. We were on spring break, so I was going to work the day shift at the station so one of the mechanics could get started on his spring field work. After returning home about 4.30, Dad asked me if I knew where Mom was. I had no idea. The car was gone, but she had food in the refrigerator for supper. Dad prepared supper for he and I, and we sat in silence as we ate, wondering where she might be. I didn't feel much like eating as I knew something bad had happened. After supper, Dad called the police, but they wouldn't do anything until she was missing 24 hours. Dad went to go look for her, and I stayed home in case she returned. Later that night, Dad returned, and my best friend and I decided to go look for her. As we were leaving, Dad suggested we go out to Blackhawk Park, thinking she might have gone there to go for a walk. The park was closed due to high water, but her car was sitting in the parking lot outside the park gate. My heart leapt for joy, but at the same time, I felt real sorrow. I went to the ranger's mobile home and woke him up. He let me use his phone to call my dad and suggested that dad call the county sheriff. The ranger took me into the park in his truck and took me to every outhouse in the park. He had me go in every one of them to see if she was there. Probably the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. By the time we returned to the car, dad had arrived with a deputy. They asked Dad to open the trunk of the car. Probably the most terrifying thing he ever did in his life. Nothing. The next few days involved a massive search for her, but produced nothing. I wanted to be angry at God for allowing this to happen to our family, but I knew I needed him to get through this difficult time. Eventually, her case was turned over to the Cedar Falls police, and they called it a homicide without a body. For the next few years, every time they pulled a body out of the river, we were sure it would be her, but it never was. After seven years, Dad had her declared legally dead. I graduated high school in January of 1979 so I could start in the auto body repair program at Hawkeye in March. I didn't want to waste four years of my life in college. I wanted to quickly learn a trade so I could get a real paycheck. That summer, I broke up with a girl I had been dating for a year and a half as I couldn't see a future for us. Just three days later, I met a girl named Kim that was just going to start her senior year at West High. She was a real breath of fresh air to me. It felt like a new beginning. Dad even commented how much he liked having her around the house, and there weren't many things that Dad found joy in at that time. I thought Kim was a little out of my league, but I knew if she would have me, I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. In the spring of 1980, I graduated from Hawkeye, and Kim graduated from West High. 
It had been a mild winter, so the auto body shops were slow and there weren't any jobs to be found. If you were here in 1980, you'll remember the recession we were in due to the farm crisis. John Deere's was in the process of cutting their workforce in half and nobody was hiring. I managed to land a job as an assistant manager at a self-serve gas station that was new to town. It didn't pay a lot, but it was a job. On Kim's 18th birthday, August 2nd, 1980, she found out that she was pregnant. She had, we had plans to marry the following spring, but decided maybe we should do that sooner rather than later. We got married on September 19, 1980. I had no idea how we would live on my meager salary, but we'd have to figure it out. We were going to get married on a Friday night at Orchard Hill. The day before our wedding, Rath Packing called and asked if I could come in the next day for orientation. I said sure and was nearly late for my own wedding, but I had a job that paid more than double what I was making at the station. We got married that Friday, spent the weekend in the Amana colonies, and on Monday afternoon I went off to my new job. We put everything, every penny we had into the bank to help us pay for that new baby that was on the way. The thri Friday before Thanksgiving, the foreman in my department came up to me just before quitting time with a pink slip and told me they were going to let a bunch of us go as they were cutting back on production. This was a huge blow to us. I had never been unemployed. I only had 13 weeks of unemployment pay, and it seemed like it was gone in no time with no real job prospects. Our savings started to dwindle in a hurry. I picked up a few odd jobs here and there, but not enough to survive on. One day I woke to a phone call from a local siding contractor that had a semi half full of cellulose insulation he needed unloaded. I immediately drove over and worked about 90 minutes unloading a truck for five bucks. It wasn't much, but you don't know how bad we needed that five dollars. March 11, 1981, it was my 20th birthday, and Kim woke up with what she thought were mild labor pains. I had an odd job that morning, and she said that when I was done, we had to go to the local welfare office to sign up for Title 19. Now, I know people sometimes need government assistance to get back on their feet, and I'm truly grateful that the welfare safety net was there for us at the time. But at the time, it also felt like the worst day of my life. Here we were, sitting in the welfare office with my wife in labor. About seven o'clock that night, I drove Kim to the hospital. The ER nurse told me she was in very mild labor, but they would admit her. I told her the baby had to make it before midnight since it was my birthday. She assured me we wouldn't see the baby before 2 a.m. Two hours later, our daughter Mindy was born. All of a sudden, the worst birthday of my life became the best birthday of my life. I didn't know it at the time, but we were experiencing the two rails of life that we often talk about here at Orchard. On one rail, my life was in total turmoil, but on the other rail was the joy of a new life in our family. A month after Mindy was born, I heard the manager at the self-serve station I had worked at got fired. I was at the station at 6 o'clock the next morning to see if I could get my old job back. They hired me as the assistant manager, and within six months I was the manager. We were still poor, but had a regular paycheck coming in. Three years later, our son Brandon was born, and in 1985, I took a job servicing x-ray film processors, and that began, began my lifelong career in the x-ray business. When I look back at those early years for Kim and I, and I see what we went through, I'm amazed we survived it. As young as we were, the odds were not in our favor, but God carried us through. I had not been in the church since our wedding, but when Mindy turned three, I knew it was time to go back. Kim's church experience had been riding the church bus to Sunday school all through elementary school, but no more than that. She thought church would be okay, 
but she surely didn't want to go every Sunday. A new pastor named Ed Baker had come to Orchard Hill, and we heard good things were happening there. Soon after we started back, Kim and the kids were baptized by Ed on the same day. I had come back for my kids, but soon realized I needed to be here as much as they did. In the fall of 1997, I had begun an addition on our house that would include a major remodel inside as well. One night I took a break from working on the house and sat down to enjoy some TV with Kim. An episode of 2020 came on that was going to focus on colorectal cancer. I had heard commercials for the show earlier in the day and had vowed I would not watch it because I didn't want to hear what they had to say. My secret was that I'd had blood in my stools for several months and had told no one about it. I forced myself to stay and watch the show and promptly called my doctor the next day. On November 12th, I found out I had a walnut-sized cancerous tumor in my rectum. I was 36 years old with no family history of colorectal cancer. I went home to an empty house and looked out at my half-completed addition that was not yet ready for an Iowa winter. How could I complete this and go through cancer treatment at the same time? Once again, I was having the worst day of my life. The first question you ask after diagnosis of cancer is, why me? But to answer that question, you also have to ask, why not me? I was reminded that God did not spare his own son the suffering of the cross, so why should I expect him to spare me any suffering? A couple of days after my diagnosis, I went to the book of Job to see if I could find some answers about going through hard times. In the first chapter of Job, I read how Job lost everything his home, his livestock, his kids, and his health. Then in Job 1, verse 20, I read, Then Job fell to the ground and worshipped to God, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I closed the Bible and decided that is how I would face my cancer treatment. Dave Bartlett told me right after my diagnosis that I needed some goals during my treatment. I made three goals. I wanted to go on a bike ride with my dad on Memorial Day weekend. I wanted to see both of my kids graduate high school, and I wanted to walk Mindy down the aisle at her wedding. If I could accomplish that, I was going to be okay with my life. Never in my wildest dreams did I believe I would live to see the seven wonderful grandchildren that I have today. I was told I needed radiation and chemotherapy. I was also told that I would have a colostomy for the rest of my life. In my mind, I was okay with the chemo and the radiation, but I vowed I was not going to have the colostomy. After discussions with several local doctors, I went to Iowa City for another opinion and was given the same news I had already received. At that point, I gave in and asked the doctor to explain this colostomy thing to me. He brought in an ostomy nurse to give me more information. The doctor then told me I had a great surgeon and cancer treatment center in Waterloo and I should go home and get healed. Early in December, I began to take radiation treatments and chemotherapy at the same time. The goal was to shrink the tumor as much as possible before my surgery. This was a time of great struggle for me, but also a time of great spiritual growth. Working in the medical industry, all of my customers knew what I was going through. At every hospital I went to for work, I had to give them an update on my treatments, but it was also a great time to tell them about my faith. I was never so comfortable sharing my faith as I was in those eight months. Chemotherapy and radiation treatments were tough, but I managed to work up to the day of my surgery. I worked shorter days and tried to stay local so I could go home and nap if needed. 
The side effect of both treatments is diarrhea, and I had it for 44 days straight. On the 44th day, I cried out to God from the toilet, I can't take one more day of this. The next day, it was gone. Through the whole process, it just felt like every day, God picked me up and said, let's go do another day. On February 16, 1998, I had surgery to remove my rectum. The day after my surgery, a nurse came into my room and told me she had read my medical history and she thought I was a miracle. I told her I believed in miracles and I was okay being one. Two months after my surgery, I started three more rounds of chemotherapy. On Memorial Day of that year, I did ride bikes with my dad, even though I was on chemo at the time. On a Friday in June, I took my last chemo injection, and that night, Kim and I sat down to watch TV in our new family room. They ran a rerun of the episode of 2020 that saved my life, and that seemed like a fitting end to this chapter of my life. I've had several surgeries since then and still struggle with my digestive system to this day. After having cancer, my perspective on life was changed, and now I consider every day of my life truly a gift from God. Fast forward to 2014. I'm scheduled to lead a group from the church on a late summer canoeing trip to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. My daughter Mindy and her husband Brian have adopted a little boy from China, and they plan to name him Austin. They will go to China for 15 days and plan to arrive home a day or so before I do. At the same time, my dad was scheduled for a surgery to repair a herniated disc in his back. The surgery involves some risk as he had had two previous heart attacks and will have to go off his blood thinners for the surgery. Dad would not have dreamed of me canceling my trip for him because he never wanted anyone fussing over him. He also understood that my plans also affected other people's vacation plans. The day before my trip, I took Dad and my stepmom out for lunch. I knew I would feel awful if something happened to Dad while I was away. At lunch, he shared with me how excited he was to meet Austin. Who was this man? Surely this was not my dad. This was a sight of Dad I had never seen before. He told me of an orphanage behind the barracks in Korea where he would watch the little kids play. He said he always had a soft spot in his heart for those kids. A week later, we were driving back to Ely, Minnesota after our canoe trip was over. Once we got into cell range, my son had a text on his phone from my son-in-law, Brian. The text read, please call my mom and let her know we're stuck in Tokyo and won't be home tonight. He had forgot that Brandon was with me. When we got back to Ely, I called Kim and she informed me that dad's surgery went well, but he had a heart attack the night after the surgery and was still in a coma. She had no news on Mindy and Brian other than they got stuck in Tokyo. We had to spend the night in Ely as it was too late in the day to start for home. The next morning, Craig called and said, it, I, said I needed to get home as fast as I could. Dad was not doing well. I walked into our house at 4 o'clock that afternoon as Kim was hanging up the phone with Mindy. They were in Chicago, but American Airlines wanted $1,000 to fly them to Waterloo. They were going to rent a car instead and drive home. We rushed up to the hospital and found my dad still unconscious, but clinging to life. As we left the hospital about 10 o'clock that night, I was feeling those two rails of my life again. I was leaving my dying father to go meet my new grandson. That was an emotional swing for me, about as great as the day that Mindy was born. The next day, dad was awake, but couldn't speak. He had been shocked many times the day before in an effort to restore a normal heart rate. He wrote a note asking us not to let him be shocked again. He got to meet Austin that afternoon, and they shared a high five. 
By this time, my sister and stepsister were here from out of state, and once he could talk, Dad had each one of us come into his room one at a time. When it was my turn, I thanked him for the way we were raised and told him how much I loved him. He told me how proud he was of his kids. He died in the hospice house a few days later. Being the do-it-yourselfer that Dad was, he had written his own sermon for his funeral, and the pastor delivered it as it was written. As a sidebar on my dad's life, he found out on his 82nd birthday through Ancestry.com that he had three half-brothers and three half-sisters from his biological father. He told me that he woke up that morning an only child and by lunchtime had six siblings. They all lived in the western United States, but he got to meet them all. They only had ten months with him before he died, but they made up for lost time quickly and formed true family bonds in those ten months. They truly became the family he had always wanted as a child. When I look at the journey of my life, I see how God has shown up over and over and over again to care for me and my family. It has taught me that there is not a lot of things in this life that are worth worrying over. Worry for me has become a useless endeavor. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet I tell you, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they not much more val- are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you. Two rails. Two rails. Let's uh, pray together. Father, thank you for this story for Kevin's courage, for his perseverance, for your work in his life over and over and over again. Thank you that he's standing here before us, the survivor of cancer. Thank you that he has learned from you, God, the role that worry cannot play in a life. Thank you for his testimony. Thank you for his dad and his mom and his brother and his sister. And Father, I pray for our congregation now, for each of us, that some part of Kevin's story that connected with us, you would use in us to help us walk stronger with you, walk stronger in life, walk stronger with those we love. Father, could it be so, please? In Jesus' name, amen.